another way to think about optimism is like human ingenuity. Humans are smart. Like as a collective species, like we're going to figure it out. If there's a will to like build a blockchain based economy and network and a metaverse, like people are going to figure it out. And that's, I think, you know, one of the biggest, I'd say lessons is, is, um, don't doubt human ingenuity. Hello and welcome to Lewis and Kyle show An interview podcast from my friend Lewis and I interview fascinating people doing interesting things like writing books, starting businesses, doing things in the cryptocurrency space, real estate, uh, internet entrepreneurship, growing audiences online and leveraging the internet to make the world a better place. This episode is with Matt Slater, who's a VC and angel investor at his firm called Stateless Ventures. Matt has a pretty interesting background in the crypto landscaping, extremely early to Bitcoin and extremely early to Ethereum, as in pre-sale early to Ethereum, which is pretty fascinating to discuss. His, before his VC company, Stateless, now, he had a startup that he started and sold to Wire. It was called Hedgy. It was one of the very first smart contract use cases of Bitcoin, also one of the very first products using Bitcoin to create Bitcoin derivative products. If those are all confusing to you, Kyle does a really good job of making him clarify all of those terms in this podcast so they are less confusing. We also discuss you know, starting those things, his investment philosophy, some of the things he finds exciting in the future of Web3. We discuss his experiences digital nomading, some of the other non-Web3 organizations he's a part of, like the Summit Series, and a whole lot more. I'm excited for you to check out this episode with Matt. I'm going to switch over to it now. Enjoy. Matt, welcome to The Lewis and Kyle Show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks. Absolutely. I want to start out, you know, people listening to the podcast haven't had the luxury of doing the research that we've done. Uh, so would you mind introducing yourself, maybe giving kind of like an abbreviated life story from maybe the, you start in college to where you are today? Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's see, going back, uh, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, um, which, uh, you know, at 18, I uh, made the bold decision to go to school in America. Um, so at USC, I studied finance, um, and there's kind of where I got my initial, uh, you know, foray into, into the, my entrepreneurial journey. Um, in school, I ended up starting uh, my first business, which is called Campus Inc., uh, which is a screen printing company. We did a lot of the, the screen printing um, for fraternities, sororities, college, college groups. Um, and that was a moment where I was like, you know, really, my eyes were open. Um, at the time, I read a, a really great book called The 4-Hour Workweek. Um, that kind of showed me like, you don't have to just do a nine to five job. There's other ways to make money. Um, and I remember getting a first check handed to me for like 1500 bucks. Um, cause we were selling, you know, we were just getting started and I remember being, I can't believe someone paid me to, to make, um, you know, to, to basically print them t-shirts and, and whatnot. Um, but fast forward, uh, after college, um, ended up moving to San Francisco where I uh, kind of got into the crypto world. Um, I was doing a grad program in finance at the time uh, and discovered uh, Bitcoin initially from Twitter, uh, people like Mark Andreessen, Chris Dixon um, and whatnot and started going to the, the meetups um, on the weekend. So it was it would be like 20 people in a shitty co-working space in the mission. Um, this was in 2013. Uh, so started going down the rabbit hole there, um, ended up investing in the Ethereum crowd sale, um, started trading it, uh, and then, you know, was looking at the time, there were no margin products, there were no like crypto derivatives, uh, this is 2013-14. And so, you know, started putting together um, uh, some ideas of building a, a crypto margin trading platform, ended up 
getting second place uh, at Boots VC Hackathon. We built a, kind of an MVP in, in a weekend. Um, and then from there, met, met some co-founders and went through Boots VC to build uh, what became Hedgy, which is my last um, uh, crypto startup. We were one of the first, I'd say, DEXs um, in the crypto space, which is a decentralized exchange. This was like even before Ethereum had launched. Um, built that, uh, raised money from Tim Draper, Mark Binioff, um, and a, a few other investors, uh, and ended up getting acquired by Wire, uh, which is another crypto company in uh, 2018. And then through that process, was continuing to invest um, and ended up launching my fund, Stateless Ventures, uh, in 2017, 2018. And that's where I'm continuing uh, to do today. So mostly investing in DeFi, Web3, um, Metaverse, now expanding to NFT infrastructure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into to all of that. I want to ask about um, crypto in 2013. And like, I feel like now on Twitter, people are talking about how, you know, it's sort of like a, a big group of people knows a secret that the world doesn't know yet. And like crypto is this wave that's coming and you can't stop it. But the people that are in, behind the wave that know it's coming, like they have this huge advantage. In 2013, was what was the certainty like around uh, crypto in the future? Like, was it did it feel the same way, or with the adoption that's happened over the last few years, has that certainty really set in? And only now um, is it you know being behind that yeah. wave. What was it like then? Uh, so first, that's a great question. Um, I remember distinctly like getting into starting to go to the meetups and thinking like oh shit, I missed it. Like I felt, this is 2013, so Bitcoin was probably like when I first got $120 or so. Um, Coinbase had launched, they just raised their C or Series A. Um, now Gox was a big exchange, Bitstamp was live. And I felt like I missed it. And actually uh, um, I read a post or a podcast from Mark Andreessen at the time who was, uh, he said he got to Silicon Valley in 1993 or 91, whenever it was. And he's like, you know, uh, Yahoo was, was live. Um, these other browsers were live. Uh, um, Microsoft was live. Like uh, he felt like he missed it. And he's like, you just don't realize how early you are. So in, in 2013, I mean, we all kind of had this weird feeling that like, oh, a lot of the smartest people in Silicon Valley are, are interested in this. They're working on it. Um, you know, this Bitcoin thing is really cool. Like you have your moment, I think, when you first send a transaction. And it goes to another address and you're like, oh, shit, like that's that money was just moved. Like I didn't have to talk to anyone. I didn't have to go through a bank. Um, but certainly we, we, you know, we had an idea, we had an idea, but no one really could have predicted, um, you know, where it is now. Certainly Ethereum at the time, because uh, remember, this is this is before Ethereum had had, uh, had been drafted at all. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely, definitely. Basically, the, 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 the most interesting sign for me was the smartest people I could meet in Silicon Valley were working on this. So that was just like, okay, pay attention. Um, this is interesting. Was that fr same framework kind of guiding you towards that shift to metaverse, NFTs, Web3, DeFi? Yeah, I'd say, you know, now it's, I've been thinking about this recently. I think we're, crypto and Web3 is kind of like the next computing wave. Uh, you know, first you had, personal computers or mainframes in your personal computers. Um, then you had the internet, which connected all the computers. And then you had mobile, which is probably like the last big wave, which is 2012 or so. And now I think we're having like 
a new wave, which is uh, you know network blockchain computers. Um, in terms of how I'm thinking of it, you know, there's a bunch of themes I'm investing in. So one, obviously, DeFi was a big focus um, for us, and uh, basically anything that's digital. For example, money. Money's digital instinctively. Like there's nothing analog about it. So it was a great first use case for a blockchain because blockchains don't need to talk to the real world for money. It's already digital. They just look at a price feed. They can settle financial transactions. Currencies already are digital. You know, um, equity is already digital. So that was a good first use case. And now as we go beyond that, like what other, you know, easier low hanging fruit is there? Well, social networks are an interesting one. Like we have Web two, uh, you know, decentral, you know, decentralizing the social networks interesting. Um, and then as you get into other things that are starting to touch like analog world, let's say like real estate, that's a little bit harder, um, because blockchains need, you know, they can't read outside data. So somebody, you know, an Oracle has to provide that outside data. Um, but at least what's driving me is anything that, that is, uh, uniquely enabled by a blockchain is, is interesting to me. Well, we had it on the agenda to get into blockchain real estate, so we might as well go take care of that right now. That's my yeah, opinion. I've got a question first that I okay. want to ask we'll about next, um, about Hedgy and just seeing crypto derivatives that early. Like, you know, <clears throat> I'm in this in a class, and I don't want to talk about college too much, but like, I'm learning about the basics of derivatives, right? And it's like the class starts out with, well, you can't trade cows for chickens, like it doesn't work, and then it, and then it builds on, you know. It's sort of like, I don't want to call it a false premise, but at least a premise that I don't fully ascribe to up to the point where you're like, okay, well, you have to be able to hedge, right? You have to be able to, to fix a price. You want to fix the price of McDonald's hamburger. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's why derivatives exist. And here's how you do it based on this underlying asset of like, you know, live cows or whatever, live cattle. And I, I really just don't understand um, crypto derivatives as a... It just I just don't understand the basics behind it. And so can you talk about like what it is? I mean, I understand what a derivative is in terms of like you're betting on the future value, right? Or you can short it, mm -hmm. you can we call like puts calls. I, I get it sort of. Sure. But could you just describe it and explain yeah. it? Yeah. So derivatives is kind of a, a catch all word for uh, mm -hmm. you know, synthetic financial instruments, which is another way of saying like bets, financial bets. Um, it, the history of derivatives is actually kind of helpful to understand. So um, the first derivative contract was a, a corn future in Chicago and these grain farmers uh, were making all this grain and they would like make too much of it. And so when they would go to the market, there'd be too much supply, the price would plummet. Or some years there was a drought and they wouldn't make enough. And so the prices would be, would be crazy high. And so these farmers didn't have a way of, of like keeping their, their costs stable um, and their revenues stable. For their costs so you know their revenues and their profits were, were super volatile so they came up with this basically forward contract futures contract to say okay you're a grain farmer you can lock in a price um for your grain that you can sell in six months time and then you know the buyer would come in also know like they have corn as their input the grain is their input so they would buy and they know they both know okay we have this fixed price that we can sell for this season uh and all these contracts are happening and then eventually they decide to standardize them. And that way, you know, you could do, you know, you could, they're basically more fungible. So you could do tens of thousands, you know, hundreds of grain contracts, you could do one, 
And then what happened was the clearinghouse had to come in because people would default, right? They'd say, well, you promised me this amount of grain. You didn't deliver it. Now what? So that's where the clearinghouse came. So that's kind of a bit of history. In the crypto world, um, the way we got started actually was helping Bitcoin miners. So in the same way a farmer would, would make grain, a Bitcoin miner makes Bitcoin. And uh, they would make, you know, whatever, however many Bitcoins they're, they're mining a month. But the variable costs or the variable things are um, like the, the, the difficulty rating. So they don't know how, how many other Bitcoin miners are on the network at one time. They didn't know what the difficulty rating was going to be. And so they're they're And they didn't know the price of Bitcoin. But their costs, you know, they know how much electricity they're spending with their leases. And so we gave them this, built this contract, which is really a, like an early smart contract. Uh, we built it on Bitcoin using multisig where people could, or the miners could lock in a price that they would sell Bitcoin in say like six months. Uh, and then we had market makers and, and, um, uh, and private funds on the other side buying that. Um, so that's kind of, I'd say like one of the early uses of, of crypto derivatives. Um, that's the, the initial use case was like hedging. That's why we called the company Hedgy. Uh, that's so interesting. I mean, that's just like the corn futures. Yeah, like it's just starting. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so did you did 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 you expand uh, past? I guess that like original corn future Bitcoin mining like um, contract. Yeah. So we built the the tech initially. We built on Bitcoin, um, and then Ethereum comes out, and uh, we had you know I, I was in the Ethereum ICO. Yeah, we we'd been playing with the Ethereum contracts, and and we realized that. Uh, you know, this was a fully, you know, um, expressive programming language that we could like build almost whatever we want. So we eventually built it on Ethereum uh, and then we were expanding into, you know, ETH contracts as well. Um, but everything on our platform was, was OTC. So people could come up and make their own contracts. Um, they could, uh, you know, find their own counterparties, etc. cetera. Um, we never got into options, uh, although that was, you know, eventually probably gonna you know on the roadmap we knew that was coming um and uh, uh what else yeah so essentially now if you look at like the whole crypto landscape you have everything under the sun so you have crypto options puts and calls you have futures you have perpetuals you have um people do o o otc uh you know their own kind of customized derivatives although less so um and uh and now, you know, it's, it's, it's getting weirder even too. I mean, you're going to see, I think eventually you'll be able to do like mortgage backed securities on metaverse real estate. Um, as crazy as that is, uh, to say out loud, <laughs> but that's, that's going to come. Eventually. Well, you've already seen the first metaverse REIT that came, they've, they've been working on it for, I guess it's been over a year now. Uh, but I think that that might be a good um, way for us to transition into the intersection of blockchain and real estate. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience at Pareto Properties? You know, really, I guess, like thematically, what drew you to real estate in the beginning? Because I think that you studied real estate finance in college and, and then again in law school for real estate and securities law. So like, obviously, you had this other interest that was real estate. And then you sort of stumbled into crypto and you saw like uh, unlimited upside there. Um, and, and then how do those two converge for you? Do you think in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think as a as an investor, I think at least my strategy has has been to take a barbell method. So what I mean by barbell is you have one side that's high risk, another side that's less risky, and together you know they kind of balance each other out. So for me, 
real estate, uh, you know, when I was, especially when I was in college, I did a lot of reading on, on people that I, I thought were interesting. Uh, and a lot of them were, you know, real estate investors. Um, and real estate's for whatever reason, just one of the best savings vehicles, um, that over time has, has led to a lot of, a lot of wealth creation. Uh, it's been able to last, you know, through every different cycle. If you look at the makeup of the S and P 500, you know, that those companies have completely turned over, you know, I, I don't know what the stat is, but, um, a number of them, you know, many, many are not around today. So obviously an index fund is great because you get to, um, you know, just invest in, in the index, but real estate in a way is, is, uh, another like Lindy, I'd say asset where, uh, it's not as volatile. So for me, you know, diversifying, uh, capital gains into real estate was always, um, a big priority. So in terms of marrying the two, I mean, that's, that's kind of how I think of it. Um, you have cash flow, cash flow real estate on one side, and then I have, you know, more risky, um, I'd say on the technology, technology bets, um, uh, on the other side, uh, I took, I took capital gains in 2018 and, and put them into real estate. Um, and then, uh, I've been kind of running that portfolio construction since. So I yeah. understand the, the, the premise of kind of, you know, the decoupled asset classes of the two systems and like obviously a lot of the, the promise of real estate. I'm curious though, if you do have ideas in which, you know, the idea of like blockchains will become integrated into the way real estate is owned, transacted, et cetera, and not in, not in the metaverse real estate quite yet. Sure, like sure. Physical real estate. Exactly. You, you yeah. Remember, so. I, so I looked, I looked into uh, blockchain real estate pretty deeply in 20, um, 2018, 2019. And the issue was, so people, there's a bunch of these companies that st got started. It was like, uh, all right, we're putting title on a blockchain. We're putting all your deed history so that you can just do, you know, we can just transfer title to a property. Um, by a click, you know, click of a transaction and the tech is there and the tech works, but the problem that everyone kind of realized is that real estate isn't about a database entry. There's so many intangible things that go to making clear title and to making a real estate transaction. There's an escrow company, there's tenants, there's a lien holder. And so all these parties have to kind of come together and then, oh shit, you didn't realize that there's an encroachment on your property. And that encroachment means someone's going to put a lien on it. So a blockchain can't know all that. And so it kind of, you know, I'd say falls apart pretty quickly, putting block, at least putting real estate on a blockchain, um, unless you kind of like re just use it for title, uh, just like a, a provenance record of who owned what, when, which already that, that alone would be very useful. I mean, there's so many examples around the world of countries with bad title provenance, um, which is, in my opinion, what makes, I'd say, America pretty amazing for real estate investing because you have, you, you don't even have to think about it. It's like, you know, you have a court system, if anything goes wrong, you know, you have history and, and title records, you have, uh, you know, you can get debt on properties, um, you know, so in other countries, it's a lot more difficult. But, you know, kind of bringing it home, I, I never was convinced that, you know, real estate on a blockchain would be that big. Now, as a flip side, though, metaverse real estate is very interesting because it takes all those those issues of there's an encroachment, there's you know tenants, and everything about the metaverse real estate is digital. So you know, uh, if you want to foreclose, 
it, someone doesn't make their debt payment, that's all on chain. You just take the property back. If you know you want to do a lease, uh, you can also program that into a smart contract. Every every aspect of it is a smart contract. The title provenance is all on chain. It, it, it's almost like it's like yeah, it's just like an NFT essentially. Um, the question, though, in my mind right now, at least with with metaverse real estate, is where does value accrue? So if you look at like traditional real estate or why why real estate has value today. If it's residential, it has value because it's livable. So you're providing housing as a service for someone and it's in a decent location. You know, something in a city center is gonna rent for a higher price per foot than something in a suburb because, you know, you have access, there's more demand for it. But in the metaverse, you know, that, uh, and same with like retail, right? Why is retail space in downtown New York, uh, you know, on fifth gonna be more expensive than in the suburb. So. The problem though with the metaverse is there is no physical constraint, right? There is no downtown yet. We're, we're just building it. And so the way I'm thinking about it at least is gonna be priced in like eyeballs and, and, and traffic. Uh, in the same way, if you, th you could think about it, like we already have digital real estate. We just don't think about it like this, which is let's say Google AdWords. Search engine results. Yeah, search engine results. Like the first page of Google or, or even like, you know, when your little AdWords come up, or, uh, or Facebook ads, like you're paying to get physical space on someone's screen for a price per, per thousand impressions or whatever it is. And if you don't pay, then you get booted, right? The next person comes in. It's like, you could, you could even think about it like there's th yeah, millions or hundreds of millions of real estate transactions a second for those digital ad spaces. But we don't think about it like that, right? Because it's, we think of it like digital. So. You could almost like stream the payments in real time from the eyes to the wallet of the person that owns that real estate or holds that ad space. It's sort of like Times Square, but instead everything is perfect in the uh, yes. in the counting or the understanding of like who sees what and when, yeah. and like the the value of those players even um, is like or not players necessarily, but the value of the eyes could be different by the player or, or ever how you track it. You It'd be completely perfect. You'll right. Exactly. Actually, yeah, that, that's a really fascinating idea. I hadn't quite thought of fully. So to expand on your idea, then you could even have pricing for some on someone's wallet profile. So if someone had like a bunch of expensive NFTs, you could charge the landowner, the advertiser more for when those eyeballs come. And then you'd have like, basically a printout at the end of the week or end of the month showing, okay, you had this many people with this net worth view, you had this many, this many people in total, this is what your lease payment is, or this is what your, you know, this is what your payment was. Um, yeah. that. And it's fully variable. And that's why like, you know, what you're talking about is true is where's the value accrue because like you can just teleport anywhere into central land, let's say like you could just go anywhere. So you could have a, a plot in the very, corner of the world and teleport to the city center and so location is less important and and yeah that's really interesting I, I haven't thought about how to think about where value accrues in the metaverse yeah so that's and that's kind of in the same way like going back to 2013 2014 we didn't know where exactly crypto value would accrue like there was this blog post from union square ventures called the fat protocol thesis which was that uh, the layer ones would accrue a lot of the value and not the app layer. Whereas in the, in the internet, you know, the app layer, like, uh, 
Facebook and whatnot accrued the value and, and the TCP IP protocol layers didn't accrue anything or, or, or Linux, right? Where, so, but that, you know, and that thesis has kind of been seesawing, I'd say. Like for a while, uh, people were like layer ones are, are, are not accruing the value, it's in the apps. And now you're seeing like a layer one um, rotation trade almost where layer ones, you know, you all, all these new layer ones. It's like, how many layer ones can there be? Well, there's Avalanche, there's Luna now. Uh, they're almost and they're almost acting as like side chains um, for Ethereum in a sense. They're all just kind of I kind of think of it as like one meta blockchain, all of it, right? In the same way, you have like multiple uh, websites that you you know you have Gmail and Yahoo and uh, Facebook and Twitter, right? They're all part of the internet. That's all kind of a multi-app world. You kind of the same thing with with blockchains. Crypto would be a multi-chain world. Um, might be, oh, uh, yeah, so anyway, so we don't know exactly where the metaverse, the value in the metaverse real estate or, or in the metaverse will accrue, um, but it, it, it will. You almost have to take like a leap of faith that like, okay, there's there's novelty here, there's attention here, it will accrue somewhere, we just haven't figured that out yet. Um, so it's, it's kind it's of... It's very specific to, you know, the metaverse you're in, right? If it's somewhere, and like, if it's yeah. a game, hypothetically, right, the way gameplay is dictated, if there is some central area in the game and you can own something in that area and people do travel on foot versus metaverse residential real estate, which is like, you know, everyone has their arbitrary apartment or whatever. That's very different than if there is truly a common space that's part of the game that is viably owned. Yeah. So that's, that's one, exactly. That's one way to think of it. Like the games will, will garner attention and then therefore each game will have its own, you know, value accrual mechanism within that game. Uh, I think where it gets interesting though is like, can you take your assets cross game? Can you take your avatar, you know, from one metaverse to another? Uh, can you battle with it? Can you play for real stakes? You know, and that's what this open. That, that, yeah, that, I think that's. But you, what, go ahead. But you can't take your real estate. You know, you can't take the the room and decentraland and move it into the meta like meta metaverse like Facebook's. Yes. But you can take your sunglasses that you buy or the coin from Lady Gaga that you have and show it to everybody and where, wherever you are, right? Like that's what the interopter interoptability is. But maybe that is one of the reasons why real estate has value accrual in the metaverse is because you can't transfer it from uh, from one to the yeah. other. Yeah, that's. That's possible. Um, and that's why I keep coming back to just like, it's going to be attention and eyeballs. That seems to be, you know, how the web is valued. If you think about it, like the, what's the most valuable websites, Facebook, Twitter, Google, you know, they're, they're monetizing eyeballs and traffic. Um, so there, you know, it's not a far extension to think that the web three or the, the metaverse version of that is the same, but then do you have like, other interesting, like, you know, the social graph, for example, the social graph in web two is basically your friends, so your, your social network, who follows you, who you follow, all your posts and history, but it's just data, right? So that's limited. The web three social graph is very interesting because now you have everything that you just, I just described in web two, but you have nfts you have actual assets you have mm -hmm. rights to vote in DAOs, which is like super valuable so now you have voting contracts you have all the history you have addresses that you've sent money to addresses that you you know that are friends that you approve and so now you and now you can build 
a credit score on top of that. You could start to, you know, airdrops, I think, for example, are an amazing invention that doesn't get talked about a lot. It's like, yeah, it, it's going crypto- to change the world. Yeah, we're, we take it for granted. We're like, oh, yeah, we can like we can send money to 100,000 people that we don't know, but we verified that they, you know, are someone's operating that address. They've they've provided value to our product by providing liquidity to us or, or making a transaction. And like now we can just airdrop them a token and now they're owners in our, our app. Like that's that, that yeah. concept is like just well, not possible. I want to run this idea by you too, because this is something that I think about a lot. Um, and it's the principal agent problem. And I think that it comes from my finance and accounting background in school and like how all of these systems for finance and accounting are basically built to limit or to hedge the principal agent problem or the risks that are associated between principals and agents. And one of the main things that I think is interesting about crypto is like the threshold for interacting with it. The, the the gates to be a part of any given protocol is to be a principal. And so the, yes. the principal agent problem is, is eliminated. I mean, I don't know how else you look at it. And that effect on the world isn't priced in, I don't think. Like, I don't think that um, the, the incentive structure, like the way that the incentive structures are being changed by airdropping tokens to people and like all of a sudden Lewis is an ENS evangelist to whoever will listen to him. And everybody who's interacting with that protocol has the incentives of the team that's actually building it and developing it. And so what do you think about about that idea? Yeah, it's a good way to frame it. I hadn't thought about the principal and agent problem in that context, but basically what you're saying is you're disintermediating the agent. Uh, which is which is absolutely right. Your the whole point of, of blockchain crypto is disintermediating the middleman, uh, you know, making everything more peer to peer. And yeah, essentially, you are a principal in a network now. You can vote. There's no way to be on There's... the team without some ownership. Absolutely. On the t- <laughs> yeah. You you have both or neither. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's I think that's what people miss a little bit as well is you know before you had uh you know just with websites you just you could read what what people posted then you know facebook comes along and now you can post to the website and i'd say like now we're in the third wave which is you can read you can you can post and you can own and so that's you know we haven't we're just scratching the surface of of what you can do with with ownership and i think especially in DeFi and crypto networks it's an early sign of how prolific these communities become I mean, think of the term community, like Facebook never had that community. Like there were, there were early web communities like with, with Reddit and Redditors or Yelpers, you know, why did people post Yelp reviews? It's because they felt like this sense of connection. They were bought into making the product better. They, you know, they wanted to get like, they had, uh, not ownership, but like, a, a belonging in a sense. It's and like that, Wikipedia is the perfect example. Like, no one gets paid for that. And yet you have to cross all these barriers basically to be like a, a person who is officially editing Wikipedia documents and they get nothing. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. And so it's like, you know, but, but they got a sense of belonging. They got a sense of, you know, pride actually is probably a big human emotion. Part of it is like they're 
Wikipedia maintainers. You know, they're helping create the Internet's archive, um, the Internet's information, which is which is cool. And then, but they didn't get anything for that, right? So now imagine if you could, if Wikipedia, this is a great, if Wikipedia is listening, they should do this. <laughs> they should go back and they should look at every account that's edited a post on Wikipedia or created a post. And they should, obviously, if, if, if they want to do a token, they could airdrop them a token uh, for Wikipedia DAO. And based on like commits and, and whatnot, and now they have, and now they would just make their community owner, owners overnight. Um, well, Tim Ferriss, and probably you know, pretty ah, rich that, too. Yeah, and they probably Wales solved the. Ago, so, What's that? You know, I said Tim Ferriss had Jimmy Wales on, like in the last two or three months, because I remember listening to it when I road tripped, uh, and it was a recent episode. So definitely, put, Tim's into Web three now. So you know, there's a way. That's right. He'd be a good guy to, to spearhead this. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I think that's, what's so exciting is like that, you know, all those new concepts of what can you do with an evangelized community? That's, that's also an owner. Um, mm -hmm. we're just, we're just scratching the surface there. A friend group with a balance sheet. What can they, what can they do? I want to, uh, I want to have a Dow buy like the New York Yankees or something insane. I can't believe Ken Griffin front ran the Constitution Dow. That's so so sad. Yeah, but what it, a prick that guy is. <laughs> He's a genius, though. Yeah, look, there'll be more, and I think like the oh, press yeah. alone from that is great because now people will see what's possible. Have you seen the run up in the price yeah, I was of people? Say that the tokens memed anyway. Yes. Yes. I think China China might have bought that up, and uh, you know. <laughs> Somebody might be playing with the people coin, making it not so United States, but we'll see. Yeah. If they would have waited a few days and then sold all the people, they could have definitely outran uh, Ken Griffin. They paid that's 200 million more. for we're, it. We're learning from, uh, from Ron. Right. Uh, exactly. I want to yeah. go back to something we were talking a minute ago. You wrote a blog post in 2015 called like the trillion dollar vending machine. Mm -hmm. um, we were just talking about it's a two-part question. We were just talking about, you know, valuing L1s, valuing protocols, and, like, protocol valuation and how that's difficult. So first question is, what were you writing that kind of with – to what extent were you taking yourself seriously writing trillion-dollar valuation for Bitcoin in 2015? And how surprised were you were when that was realized, you know, in the past 12 to 18 months or whenever we crossed that line? And then, two, just what's your framework generally for valuing L1s? You know, Solana, how do you justify a $68 billion market cap for something like Solana? Arbitrum yep. having like a 30, not Arbitrum, uh, Avalanche having like a $30 billion valuation. Yeah. So you're taking me back here. So yeah, that, that was, uh, so in 2015, the term smart contract wasn't a thing. I remember reading the term smart contract in the Ethereum white paper and, uh, actually in there, they use the example of a hedging contract, but in all the in, uh, investor conversations that I was having, like. I'd first have to ask them, do you, do you know what Bitcoin is? And then if the answer was yes, then I could tell them about smart contracts. And then if I had to explain smart contracts, it was like, people were like, what the hell is a smart contract? So the vending machine analogy, uh, I think it was Nick Zabo's original uh, analogy, but um, it's very helpful. So, you know, a vending machine is an automated computer that does a function based on an input you put money in and it spits out a, you know, whatever an item based on the on the letter um there's no intermediary right there's no uh, person between so that was kind of the analogy um that was apt to use a smart contract now it's like 
it's like, okay, we get it. Like we know what a smart contract is now, or at least most, I think we're starting to understand it better. Um, in terms of, you know, when I was writing that, I, I definitely was thinking, you know, if you look at the derivatives market, if you look at the equities market, you know, already those are in, are, are in the trillions. Um, so the thought back then was if this can, you know, all derivatives, in my opinion, should be on a blockchain. I think they will be eventually, uh, especially with central bank digital currencies coming. Banks will be able to offer these, you know, it, it'll, it'll power the back end. Um, and the same with, with equities as well. Uh, you know, they're already digital. It, it'll power the back end of those. So it, it was clear to me that anything with money would eventually be put onto blockchain architecture. Um, that's separate though. So whether like Solana and, you know, Ethereum and all these things justify their market caps, that's uh, a separate question. So, you know, if you look at the charts, we have cycles. We've had cycles since the very beginning of crypto. Uh, we have cycles in almost every, you know, major asset class um, that there is. So I think we're probably closer to the top of this cycle than, um, than the bottom, but uh, then again, it's like we are starting, you know, th these networks are starting to power real, real use cases and real money. So, you know, if Ethereum, be, you know, becomes a settlement layer for actual, you know, uh, real, you know, smart contracts. So like Compound, let's say, or Aave, you know, they're doing billions of dollars of lending volume. That's valuable. So what is the layer one that that app trades on worth? Should it be worth more than the app that's on it? Probably, right? Because it's securing it. And then you take that same idea and you look at, uh, at Solana. So in my opinion, like these are all networks that it's like, if you take the whole pie of use cases, each blockchain and layer one is kind of like carving out a section of it. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, at some level they, they, they deserve the valuations at these valuations, you know, hard to say, I think technology loves to get ahead of itself. Um, but that's also kind of the push and the pull of technology. Like we need the, the massive run-ups, we need the bubbles actually to create the excitement, to get awareness. Like I just saw Budweiser made their, their name like beer.e on Twitter yesterday. And it's like, that only happens when there's like people are talking about it. That means people at the company, like employees at the company are talking about it. They're going to their higher ups being like, we need to get, we need to do this. Like look at Visa, right? Um, they bought a punk because, you know, people at the at Visa uh, were, ta were talking about it. So you need to get in the zeitgeist and the way to get in the zeitgeist of culture is, is to have, you know, unfortunately these bubbles um, and, and the t technology waves are no different. So, uh, if you look at the long-term trend, you know, it's good. Uh, we're, we're actually finally getting adoption. We're finally, um, you know, having some really interesting use cases. Uh, we have a lot of smart people coming into the space. So uh, whether, you know, all these layer ones will exist in five years, ten years, probably not, but I think more than, more than just Ethereum and Bitcoin. I think that's a, a good measure take. Uh, we'll transition now to just some more rapid fire questions. There's no rule saying crypto and investing can't come back up, uh, but there are sure. a few other things we want to ask about. Uh, I saw on your LinkedIn that you've been involved in Wi-Fi Tribe, which is kind of an organization that a lot of people who have read the four hour work week end up finding on the internet and kind of like fantasizing about joining. But what's been your experience with Wi-Fi Tribe? Can you quickly introduce it? 
and kind of sure. summarize all that. Um, so Wife and Tribe was started by a friend of mine uh, named Diego. They basically were early uh, to this remote work movement where, you know, what if you could, uh, you know, obviously if you work remote, it, it kind of gets lonely and, uh, you know, but you also want to travel. So what if you could just bring a bunch of people together that are all working remote, get a house for a month, let's say, in a, in a, you know, a foreign country with good Wi-Fi um, and just kind of like co-work and co-live. Uh, and that was the initial idea for it. Um, I did the, the first one I did was in Nicaragua in 2016. And um, it was about maybe 20 people, uh, 15, 20 people in, in a house. Um, so, you, you know, most people work during the week. Uh, and then, you know, you go and do activities in the evenings and, and the weekends. Um, but now, especially, I think it's even more relevant with COVID, you know, it kind of like blew the door open on remote work and you know, all, all the tools that were there. Um, but with COVID, it really just like, it kind of made it, uh, moot the whole point. It's like, can I work remote? It's like, well, yeah, we're all, you know, we're all remote now. So that means we do it, you know, all these companies had to basically were forced to digitize or, or go remote almost overnight. And now it's kind of like the cats out of the bag. So companies like Wi-Fi tribe have really benefited. Um, and I think they'll continue to benefit going forward because, you know, there's, um, if you follow Bology on Twitter, he has a good thread on, on basically like why time zones matter more in a, in a re remote world than actually geography. And it's so true. Like, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm hiring some web developers now from uh, from uh, online, like in Mexico and uh, in South America, and it's so you know. And I was also interviewing some from Ukraine, and it's like I can have you know quick communication if they're in my time zone, but you know the people in Ukraine are going to sleep, uh, you know, halfway through my workday. So it's like it's true. The time zones matter, um, and uh, yeah. So I think we'll see like the remote work trend continue um in big ways and now with starlink i don't know if you guys follow like what's happening with starlink but mm -hmm. i'm you know the, the nerd in me is like super geeked out i have a, a bunch of a few of them ordered and my my you know my dream would be to have a starlink and just like put it on a van or put it on a, a you know a boat yeah put it on a boat maybe um, in the middle of the ocean in the middle of the ocean yeah and take zoom calls from uh yeah I, uh, it's funny this last week my girlfriend's uh, uh family was in town and like her um, like grandmother and great aunt and stuff like that. And her great aunt was, uh, was complaining about the Wi-Fi in her rural house in, in New North Carolina. And I was like, you haven't heard of Starlink? Like, what do you mean? And it's like Bitcoin solves this, you know? And so <laughs> I, I, I pulled it up and showed it to her. She's like, wow, I, I'm going to order this right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hopefully it funds the mission to Mars, right? Hopefully, yeah. I mean, uh, you know that that piece of SpaceX alone is probably worth like fifty billion at least, maybe even seventy five. Um, so, I mean, think about like you're just disintermediating the telecom companies right now. You have mm -hmm. an internet, global internet service, broadband speed, cell phones, computers, whatever, um, Internet of Things. So a lot of industries hate Elon Musk. A lot of bureaucratic giants are going to get displaced because of them. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Matt, what are your smartest friends doing at night and on the weekends now? Good question. Um, probably at the intersection of DAOs, NFTs, 
you know, DeFi still crypto um, a bit in, uh, yeah, I'd say those, I'd say for sure, you know, my circles obviously biased and skewed towards crypto. Um, but the intersection of that, of those things, I'd say um, crypto social, like social tokens, um, experimenting with like different uh, DAO governance structures, um, you know, building new DeFi primitives. I'd say we still are in early innings of all that. Um, and then we haven't even got to like what happens when you can borrow against an NFT or you can, you know, lend out an NFT for access to a DAO. Um, you know, all those kinds of use cases are, are coming. Not just uh, lending an NFT for DAO access, but for like IRL access, right? Like if you want to, when I was in New York City, I was there not related to the NFT stuff, but then it was the same time. And I was like, if I just had a friend with an ape, which I'm sure I do, uh, if I could just borrow that for the evening right, <laughs> yeah. without like getting their wallet, yeah, uh, that would be sick because there were some parties I could have gone to. Yeah. Uh, and so in that same, so take that same use case, right? Now you could do like, a week long loan or a week long rent payment to borrow that NFT. Uh, <clears throat> and now your NFTs are, you can monetize them. It's like Turo. And now they have a cash flow that you can underwrite. Yeah. And then you can get debt on them. And that, exactly. the debt that you're talking about, that, you know, that's <clears throat> one of, seriously, what I'm really interested in is like with real estate and why I think that it, it's so interesting is because. You know, once you can tokenize real estate that's producing a cash flow, your lending opportunities are like limitless effectively. And you could put it into <clears throat> a smart contract escrow between the lender and the borrower mm -hmm. and then have the the smart contract of the the um, token change to where the um, debt payment is paid automatically. And and then like upon non-payment, the, the debt would be I guess there couldn't be non-payment, but if you weren't to do the, the last part, um, upon non-payment, it would just get liquidated or moved to yeah. the, the lender's wallet, right? And so like it creates this perfect marketplace. I guess the only problem really is like valuation and how you um, value it moving forward. But yeah, I totally see your vision there. I think it's super interesting in the future. Yeah, I mean, even just like, for example, I'm going through a, a re refinancing my house um, right now and, and like the lenders want all the information, you know, income, whatnot, but they don't really value assets. Um, they don't really value it. But if there was a way to put like crypto as collateral in a smart contract that the bank could then foreclose on in an instant, uh, that would be, you know, that'd be great. I think it'd be great for the bank, it'd be great for me. It would unlock, you know, a lot of lending opportunities in, in crypto um, and bridge those two worlds. But you know, it's early days, and that's why, like anything that touches the analog world, like the traditional banking world, is just—it's just so much harder, so much slower. Like all the innovation, all the smartest people are just you know trailblazing in, in, in crypto um, in, in the open protocol world for good reason, right? Like, look at uh, the valuation of the open protocols versus versus closed. I mean, people don't even remember like the closed protocols, like there were companies um, doing like private blockchains. And do you guys know what private blockchains are? Have you come across them? I'm familiar, yeah. This was like all the rage in 2015 to 17. Uh, it was like IBM and all these companies were going to do like blockchains as a service. Um, 
and everyone was like, I love blockchain, not Bitcoin. Yep. This was like an, this was a big talking point. And, and then obviously when the next bubble happened, 2017, 2018, they quickly shifted back. Uh, but you know, now we, I'm sure there'll be some hybrid of it. You know, central bank digital currencies will be a quasi private, you know, blockchain where they'll have, you know, white labeled people that can interact with it. Maybe your bank will allow like Ethereum deposits in or Bitcoin stablecoin deposits in, and then you'll be able to send your central bank as digital currency as money. So that's like, you know, banks may end up being um, like one of the hubs to, to convert between the open and closed world. Are you concerned about t- central bank digital currencies? Actually, no. Um, I mean, the stablecoin regulation, I think, is coming, uh, especially for, you know, the big open ones. But um, overall, I see stable, central bank digital currencies actually as being very positive sum. Uh, in the That's same a hot way, take. Yeah, well, I guess look at like, okay, this is how I think about it. For example, look at people forget that there was intranets and internets in the 90s. And there was CompuServe, Microsoft was doing one. And they thought, you know, we could control everything. We could keep it in the AOL world, we could keep it in, you know, our own private networks, and we can control who goes on. But like the market won, and the market usually always wins unless there's some monopolistic like behavior going on where they can keep you know the inferior product out but the market will win and i think the market's shown through history that open protocols win so while yes central bank digital currencies i think will exist they will have to play with the open protocol network and actually if you think about it like they already do like you have dollars in a bank account that's a central bank digital currency without a blockchain you can convert that to Ethereum or stablecoin and then send on open protocol through Coinbase. So like the whole, from a user perspective, it's not that different than it already is. It's just on the back end, you know, you'll be able to maybe program smart contracts between, uh, you know, central bank dollars and, and, and a white labeled, let's say compound contract or something like that. You know, you'll be able to send your KYC dollars to a special bank of America compound money market fund um, or that all the banks use like that whole side of like the marriage between the the central world and the decentralized world is is completely un- untapped right now so i think that's that's where it's positive sum uh and look it's 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 also going to get regulated so um there's no way there's, there's no way around that and in the same way the internet was regulated you know at one point encryption was illegal uh mm. it was like fully legal and then they had to like unwind that uh, you know, and now obviously it's not, um, but e-commerce, sorry, I'm kind of rambling here, but they're all relevant parallel. So e-commerce didn't, um, take off actually until, uh, because you couldn't do encryption. It was illegal. So people had to do like plain text credit cards and people were getting, you know, credit card fraud, identity theft. This was like, people thought the internet was for pornography and, and for, um, identity theft and credit card fraud. And it wasn't until that they could when they made encryption legal again, that you could do encrypted credit cards and then e-commerce started taking off. So in the same way, like I think we're in that phase now between like openness, you know, people are getting hacked, blah, 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 blah. You know, we have a long way to go there, but eventually it'll, the market will, will figure out a solution that, that marries the two and, and it's positive some. Yeah. 
I want to save this for my next question because this is a question I want to ask more. Uh, but I think that you know we can make the argument that like zero knowledge technology might be like the, one of the next big infrastructure pieces that brings another big wave of like app pieces. Uh, but yes. I want to ask one other question, and then if you want to refund that, though, go for it. I do want to. I have a lot of curiosity about uh, an analog web two existing community, another one that you're involved in, uh, Summit Series. What's been Ooh, yeah. the involvement in that like? What's been that experience? Uh, Kyle and I have mentioned the third door, maybe one out of every 20 episodes, maybe one out of every 10. Big fans of Alex, big fans of the book, recommended it widely. So what's your experience been involved in kind of that world? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, Summit's, Summit's a really cool organization. I've been involved, I'd say, since 2017, 2018. Um, for those who don't know, it's basically a um, community of, of like-minded entrepreneurs, investors, uh, artists, change makers that kind of come together and, and um, uh, kind of, it's like a, a community that's, uh, it's business, but not formal. So, you know, you're meeting, you know, other founders and their investors on a, on a chairlift on Powder Mountain, uh, or you're having like, you know, an, an unconference type talk where people are, you know, sharing ideas. Um, it's, uh, yeah, so that's been my involvement. Um, really cool organization. They have a few, um, I think they're going to do some of it at sea again uh in the coming year um and uh, obviously with covid it was it was a bit tough for them because uh, they couldn't do in-person events but now you know that's coming back um yeah yeah it's a really cool organization um i'd love to be a part of it one day um what brings you energy like what what do you enjoy doing i know you travel a lot and you're sort of popping all over around the world are you more of a do you have like a are you a surfer is there something that you really love to do or are you just a think boy you love to think no no i have i'm not only <laughs> thinking um yeah for me i i have uh i kite surf um which is okay a big, cool. uh, a big passion that's kind of evolved i knew there over, was something there <laughs> yeah or or uh, a handful of years now um it was actually very like kite surfing is great because it, it's kind of marries getting outside but also you have to be in flow state i'd say it really cultivates flow state to do it well because you're you're harnessing the elements you're also like managing a million things with the kite and the board um and so it's kind of a, like almost like an active meditation that's one way i think of it and it was incredibly humbling um it was not easy for me to learn it took me a, a number of years and i was very arrogant going in like i snowboard i wakeboard like i pick this up fast um and when it was was difficult, it was it was very healthy, humbling experience. Um, and, uh, so that that's uh, yeah, I'd say that you know that's one thing I do for fun. Um, in terms of like what gets me excited now, uh, or what gives me energy, for, I I was thinking about this. You know, I've been thinking about this question actually a lot over the a number of years. But for me, I think being a catalyst for change, like helping predict the future. For whatever reason is is really fun for me um that's what kind of drove me to technology uh that's what drives me to crypto because it was kind of the frontier within the technology world in my opinion back back in 2013 2014 um you know helping helping you know invent the future helping push humanity forward i think technology is the best way to do that um and then leave you know i guess in a way that it kind of would translate to, to legacy in some way um and, and impact uh, so for me, you know, what's the biggest catapult, you know, thing I can, I can use as leverage on my time and 
I kind of view I kind of view technology and crypto as that right now. Um, I look you know I look back at a lot of like the internet pioneers, the web pioneers, and how they you know maybe made an impact. I think we're at that similar stage now. Yeah, it seems like you're a student of history as well. Do you? How do you? Um, or how have you done that over time? You just read a lot of books, and and are you purposeful about trying to pick up the past in order to influence the present? Yeah, for sure. I mean, reading. Um, I, I do. I do read a lot. I love reading. Uh, I think it's it's you know, especially you know, being a full circle. You know, whether you know, back to college and whatnot. I think uh, half my education. Uh, was from, you know, over half, 80% was from real world experience and, and books. Um, and school was maybe like 20, 25%. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so, so reading a lot, um, biographies are, are really helpful. Um, just studying, like studying patterns of people is useful. Like, you know, one thing I looked at a lot is, um, for, for building a successful company, you really are, you know, almost in this like gray area of building what people are, are doubting. It's almost like the more people doubt it, the more they're like, that won't work or they don't understand. That's almost like you're almost in a, in a, in the right area. Um, and so, and then also like figuring out, uh, you know, looking at the history of the web, looking at the history of the internet, to try to figure out where it's going, um, looking at the history of even like uh, telephones and, and, and electricity, that, that rollout. There was like just crazy articles actually from uh, certainly in the internet days where people were like, the internet will never work. Um, there's, a, there's a great article actually uh, I recommend checking out called Why the Internet Won't Be Nirvana. And this guy wrote it in like 1995 saying, how uh you know the, the web's stupid like why would i buy why would i buy music online when there's a full showcase of cds and dvds like down the street uh, at my local mall uh, why would i you know read something online when i can you know have my newspapers delivered like really crazy like like uh things he was saying that like you look back on and you're just like this is so cringeworthy um so it's it's helpful for me to like read that and be like okay like the human brain doesn't like change. The human brain gets you know morphed into a way of thinking, especially at a young age, and then it's it's not easy to change after that. So, trying to like remind myself of that and think you know, basically remind yourself like you don't know anything and that you know there's always more to learn. To question your assumptions, that's helpful, very helpful, um, and kind of trying to predict the future yeah think about that kind of in terms of like archetypes so we we're talking about you know wikipedia earlier and yelp and like why do some people do that with quote no reward and i think that's because always throughout history there's just maybe let's call them one in 20 people who have that like historian archetype and it's just like this intrinsic drive to document and like that is like the thing then there's like the technology type person right who's just like the optimist the push things forward the yeah. this is cool and we don't have it yet but i think it's cool and i see a benefit and like you have no attachment to the status quo and you're like the let's just push things forward and then there's the third type which is like the you know the the luddite who's let's just things are perfect as they are let's not allow new things to adopt and those are just like archetypes just like you know some people just aren't morning people and everyone has their different chronotype it's kind of a resistance to change type personality mm -hmm. trait that's arguably fixed uh then the internet's just kind of changed communication to where certain things bubble to the top uh and everything's like yep. hyper amplified 
Yeah, I think you'll be. It's very rare to meet a technology person, technologist that's pessimistic, <laughs> because it's hard. It, it's hard to be like you can't hold, especially investors too, right? Because who's going to allocate their capital, right? Yeah. Like, why would I put this at risk if I don't think it's going to work? You just have to have some degree of crazy optimism. Yeah, and and you know, I think another way to think about optimism is like human ingenuity. Humans are smart. Like as a collective species, like we're going to figure it out. If there's a will to like build a blockchain-based uh, economy and network and a metaverse, like people are going to figure it out. And that's, I think, you know, one of the biggest, I'd say, lessons is is um, it's like don't doubt human ingenuity. Basically, uh, like the the signal of like a lot of smart people working on something is not something to fade. And that's uh, and that's been very helpful. Um, so I think that you're seeing that with Web three right now. Like, look at Jack Dorsey, right? He just stepped down from Twitter. I guess we don't know for sure, but probably going to be working on Web3 and, and crypto stuff. Mark and Zuckerberg. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and Bitcoin. I think I think he'll eventually come around. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Twitter came uh, around yesterday. Because he, they added he ETH payments. Yep. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's fast. Um, and, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, someone like, would say. Yeah. Uh, and, I was, you know, with Zuckerberg moving to, to Meta, like, they they see it so um well one question i'd like to sign off with with crypto investors and enthusiasts is the the not financial advice section of the podcast uh what are a specific subgroup of smart people working on some moonshot bets some moonshot 10x projects people should look at just for fun and not people shouldn't look at them you know they just look at them. <laughs> yeah just evaluate uh, no financial kind of advice under the radar projects you think are worth exploring. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, less turn into more with for utility's risk. sake. Yeah, I mean, I can't give you know any obviously financial advice. Um, Projects worth looking at, but yeah, things <laughs> areas. I mean, anything that's okay. Um, let's see. I mean, one one portfolio company I can talk about um, that's pretty interesting is uh, FutureSwap. Um, they built a um, basically futures based AMM. Uh, and they're building on top of Uniswap now. Um, so that's a pretty cool one to check out. Really smart team um, doing some doing some really interesting things at the intersection of, of uh, AMMs and, and, and derivatives. That is a problem. Amazing. Are, thank, yeah, uh, I'd say, all, without being specific, I'd say like the Cosmos ecosystem is very interesting right now. Um, I think what I like a lot about Cosmos is the uh, everything is its own app chain. So you know, if you're building a social media protocol on, on Cosmos, you have, you're also the layer one. And so you can build your layer one to the specifics of, um, of what you need. So you can build it for scaling, you can build it for, you know, finality, you can have extra features. You can, and then now, you know, they launched um, uh, the hub. So now all, all Cosmos chains can interact with each other. Um, as almost like one one meta layer, so that's that's pretty exciting. I think a lot of DeFi stuff on there um, is it, pretty cool. Well, Matt, this has been a really really fun episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where should people, if they want to follow you on Twitter, read your blog, anything like that? What are the places to direct their attention? Um, yeah, they can go to my Twitter. It's just at Matt Slater um, or my website mattslater.co, um, and the fun website is stateless.vc. Um, yeah. DMs are, yeah, feel free to shoot me a DM. Um, this has been super fun, guys. Enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Matt.
And that wraps up our conversation with Matt Slater, really forward thinking person, obviously, who has proved that over and over again. Uh, and, you know, I think he's made some really interesting moves um, over the last 10 years. So he's going to continue to do that in the future. And, um, and yeah, so my three takeaways, number one is that l you have to look at ideas through the lens of value accrual. Like, it's not enough for an idea to just be really good. You have to understand, like, how it's going to make money and, and where in the process, like, value will accrue to so that you don't waste your time building products and services that should exist, but when they do exist, won't make money. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and I'm not sure where, like, I gleaned that from the podcast, but I definitely have been thinking about it since then. Uh, number two, pay attention to what your smartest friends are doing and don't look away, figure out what it is and, and why they're interested in it. Because I think that that's where like a lot of value accrues in your social networks. Um, he said for him, his smartest friends are doing things like social tokens, metaverse, real estate, yield farming, uh, and the like, I think there's a couple more maybe that I'm missing. And then number three is, um, Oh, okay. Yeah. So just the, I really thought the conversation was interesting about metaverse real estate and how you have to value it differently um, than normal real estate because of the zero cost of transportation within the metaverse. And I, I think that that problem being solved for will unlock like a, a lot of value. Like right now there's a lot of speculation going on um, in these digital worlds and in like the Decentraland and Sandbox and all these things, people are paying millions of dollars for uh, parcels of real estate. And I, I just, I don't know, I don't think the um, the demand, like I just don't think all the tools are built yet. It's just, it's really, really early. Um, and somebody's going to figure out how to make those plots of land really valuable. Um, but they're going to have to have a really good question for why is this valuable in the face of no cost transportation? Nice takeaways. Three from me jumping right in. First one is being in the same industry for a really, really long time. Kind of the interesting advantages that, that come from that. So, you know, I feel like I've been crypto in crypto a long time. Obviously I haven't right. Like not before this podcast, which only started 18 months ago. And even then I feel like we started get discussing crypto like nine months in, so like really under a year. I still feel like it's been a long time. Compare that to someone like Matt, who is literally approaching the decade mark for his involvement in crypto. You know, I'm asking him questions about like, how did this, you know, prediction you made in 2015 kind of play out? And those are like, just the, the, being asking those questions, like immediately just gives him so much credibility to answer them. Cause it's like, you've been around for 80% of the lifetime of this space. And like, as long as he doesn't leave, that number only goes up. Uh, cause I mean, he only like came out in 2009 is when like the, the concepts were born. So he's like been around the, everything. And that gives him a lot of perspective, like for some of the things you're discussing, Kyle, to speak really candidly about what will and won't make it because like you, he's like in, in bull markets, you don't have to actually do anything valuable and your things just blow up. But like to, to make it through the cycles that he's seen, eventually you have to actually have a good idea. Otherwise the ideas are not going to make it. Second one is the idea of the serendipity or synchronicities or whatever you want to say that kind of came from living in San Francisco when he graduated. Obviously, we didn't ask him about any of the counterfactual questions, but it kind of seems like he first discovered crypto in large part to living in San Francisco and being surrounded by the types of people who would be early to a phenomenon like this. So the kind of takeaway is like, are you putting yourself in situations 
we're just going to randomly encounter things that have world changing ideas, or you're just kind of hanging out and like not interesting places with not interesting people. Uh, so I don't tell, this is kind of making me reevaluate, not reevaluate, but look for opportunities to join additional communities or additional circumstances. And neither of those have to be in person in person's awesome and potentially preferable, but not mandatory. If that's not an option uh, where I'm more likely to encounter these types of interesting people, these interesting ideas, these kind of quote unquote, smartest friends who do things on, on nights and weekends that end up being 10 X investments. Third takeaway is the idea of, you know, quote unquote, did you miss it? Right. Matt thought he missed it. Kyle and I thought we missed it when we were interviewing DeFi Andy about Ethereum and DeFi and like, when at March or January, or February, whenever that was, this is in December of 2021 for context. Had we done that, right. And been like, just decided to go all in then it would have been unbelievable. The types of returns we would have gotten in that ecosystem. Had we gotten into like Solana or anything back then, which we had thought we quote unquote missed. Right. I mean, things are happening all the time. And as Matt put it at the end, or it might've been honestly off air, uh, but focusing our time and energy on the frontier of the space is one kind of more interesting way to make it more likely that you haven't missed it. You know, I would make the argument that this is, of course, not financial advice, but even the OG item in the space, Bitcoin, you haven't missed yet. There's still room to run there because, you know, if it becomes the world's global reserve currency and things like that, which are looking somewhat probable, if not possible, uh, then there's still lots of room to run. I mean, institutions haven't even hopped in yet. Anyway, rambling here, the frontier, you certainly haven't missed yet. That doesn't mean that, you know, there won't be short-term cycles and long-term action. And, you know, you should do your own research and actually learn about investing if you're curious about these things. But interesting things are going to continue to happen in the space. Money is going to continue to be made. Will it be as early as it was, It as easy as it was in 2013? I don't know, but there's still a lot that's going to happen. So optimism. That's all I have to say for this episode of the Lewis and Kyle Show, a podcast I hope you enjoyed as much as we enjoyed making. There's about 90 other episodes. I'd encourage you to listen to them. I'd also encourage you to shout out Kyle and I on social media. Shout out does not have to mean publicly shout us out. Just you know, hop in the DM, say, hey, give some feedback, suggest some guests, suggest some topics, start a conversation. We're all open to those things. Otherwise, we have a sponsor now, which I want to mention. They're called Espresso Displays. They're portable second monitors. They're thinner than an iPad. Uh, you can use them with your laptop. You can take it to a coffee shop. You can take it on an airplane. And it's really hard to travel with a monitor on an airplane and a laptop, but not if it's an espresso display. Uh, I took mine home. I took it on another trip. It's like slides into any pocket in my backpack. It's pretty awesome. And they come in 13 inch and 15 inch varieties. And we have a link to check them out in the bio, in the show notes. I'd encourage you to do some digging there. That's all I have to say for this week. We'll be back probably in a week or so with another episode. See you then. Bye-bye.